Uh, we had a first this year. On the first day of school, I stood in my living room, and I looked out the window, and I watched as both of my high school daughters got into a car and drove to school with me not in the driver's seat. And I prayed for the safety of our community in that moment. And, and then what was funny was I was actually in that same place sitting on my couch when my girls got home. And the reason I knew they were home is because I could hear the rims of the tire driving along the curb of my front yard, which is not a sound a father likes to hear, you know, as a car owner. So I'm thankful to be a Christian because I have a bigger hope than that. And so <laughs> thankful to be together. I hope you're great. I hope you're excited to be here. Are you excited to be here this morning? And praise God. Will you pull out your Bible and open to the book of Acts? If you don't have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, the ushers are coming and we're going to get into the word together today. Acts chapter 2. This past week, the global Christian community said goodbye to one of our own, a true saint in the Christian church. On September 16th, Nabil Qureshi went to be with the Lord after enduring a year-long battle with stomach cancer, a brutal, brutal, vicious form of stomach cancer. Many of you are familiar with his name. He was a gifted writer, a gifted speaker, an apologist, probably most famous for a book that he wrote called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. We talked about that book a couple years ago. I know many of you have read it. I know many of you have been following his story, and it's been so sad to hear his fight that he ultimately lost. Um, Nabil is one of those amazing testimonies of conversion to Christianity. And I want to tell part of that story this morning to get us prepared for what we're going to look at in Acts chapter 2. Nabil first encountered the claims of Christianity when he was a college student his freshman year. He met another student there named David who was kind of a unique guy. And he noticed that in between classes, David was reading his Bible like in his free time, like, you know, because he wanted to read it. Shocker, right? And Nabil thought, what a strange thing, you know, for to see someone reading a Bible. Because Nabil was a devout Muslim raised in a, in a devout Muslim home, he had some hang-ups about Christianity. And one of his hang-ups was about the Bible, the validity of the Scripture. So to see a Christian reading the Bible and appearing to be impacted by what he read, this captivated Nabil. And he started a friendship with this young man named David, who was a pretty astute young Christian guy. He had studied some apologetics. Nabil had a lot of questions and conflicts with Christianity. They formed a friendship and started batting stuff around together. And what happened in Nabil's life, to his surprise, was that over the course of a couple of years, he started to discover that the claims of Christianity are actually pretty coherent and valid and strong. And so to his shock, about two and a half years into college, he started realizing Christianity there's a strong case for me to become a follower of Jesus. But he had one major hang-up in his life. And the hang-up had to do with his parents, whom he loved. 
In an article to Christianity Today, he wrote, I knew that in converting to Christianity, the two people I loved most in this world would be shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made, and it's excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. He described the first time he saw his mom, and she started weeping, and his dad couldn't make eye contact with him. They were loving, devout, peaceful Muslim people. Islam was the center of their lives. He was raised in a home to become a devout follower of Allah, and he had betrayed his family by becoming a Christian. And it, it rattled him so much that the biggest hang-up for him in turning his life over to Jesus was the impact it would have on his mom and dad. Anybody have a Christian testimony, something like that? Unbelievable. What did he do in that moment when he was in despair? He turned to the scriptures. He, he sought Jesus he focused on Jesus in the scriptures, and here's what happened. He writes, With nowhere left to go, I opened my New Testament and started reading. Very quickly, I came to the passage that says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Electric. The words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I could not put the Bible down. I began reading fervently, reaching Matthew 10, where Jesus taught that I must love God more than my mother and my father. But I said, Jesus, accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. And then I turned the page and read, if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Nabil thought, would it be worth it to pick up my cross and be crucified next to Jesus? If he's not God, then no. Lose everything I love to worship a false God a million times over? No. But if he is God, then yes, being forever bonded to my Lord by suffering alongside of him a million times over, yes. All suffering is worth it to follow Jesus. He's that amazing. Amen? Amen. See, Nabil stumbled on a truth that many of us know. Jesus is worth building our lives around. He's that amazing. He's worth it. Jesus is so unique. He is so wonderful. He's so one of a kind that no matter how much it costs me, no matter how much I have to suffer, it is worth centering my life around Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you come from, this morning, but can I make you a promise today? If you center your life around Jesus, no matter how much it costs you, I guarantee you your life will be filled with vibrancy and meaning and purpose and life. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. But uh, we could state that truth in another way, in an opposite way. And it's going to get me to sort of the, the, the heart of my sermon this morning See, if you center your life around Jesus, I guarantee you, your, your life will be filled with vibrancy and meaning. But if you want to see all of the spiritual vitality drain out of your life, take your focus off of Jesus. Replace 
Jesus with something else. Take something else and put it in the center and make it more important than Jesus. And if you do that, I guarantee you, all of the vitality, all of the meaning, all of the power, and all of the wonder will drain from your life. And it's not just true for you as an individual, it's true for us as a church. If we want to see the spiritual vitality drain out of our church, what we would do is take our focus off of Jesus, which, by the way, we're never going to do. <laughs> we're never going to do it. Amen? We're never going to do that. Last week, Pastor Guy taught us that there are three things that always happen in a living church. Do you remember this? Three things always happen. Divine moments, health, and momentum. You walk into a church that's alive you walk into a church that's vibrant, you can feel it, and, and what you're experiencing are those three things, divine moments, health, momentum. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is there's one thing that a church could do to destroy all three of those things, and that one thing is take the focus off of Jesus. Because Jesus is like the spiritual oxygen that brings all of those things into a church, divine moments, momentum, health, it comes to the church because of the living Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus is our first word in our list of traits that we're going to focus on as a church. So what we talked about last week is that this series that we're in is going to focus on the health column, and I'm going to put the words up there now. Here are the seven traits of health. We, we learned these last week. Jesus, gospel, Gratitude, prayer, unity, maturity, and mission. If you missed last week's sermon, you'll want to go back. If this is new to you, this is going to serve as a paradigm for our series. And here's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to focus on column one, two. Because what we learned last week is that divine moments are totally up to God. The whole church is a miracle. And the divine moments that happen in a church, like salvation and healing and all of the things that take your breath away, God is the only one who can create those. And God is the only one who can create column three, momentum. You see the church growing. You see people maturing. You see amazing things happening in and through the church to bless the world. God's the only one that can create that. But God gives us a role to play in column two. And he says, your job is to cultivate these things, these seven words. And of course, the seven traits of health begin with Jesus. It makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus is the source of every word that follows. All the other words are traits, gratitude, unity, prayer. Those are things that you see happening. But word number one is not a trait. It's not a characteristic. Word number one is a name, the name that is above every other name. It's the name of the person by whom all of the other traits can ever happen. His name is Jesus and River West, if we want to build a vibrant, living church, we need to do whatever we can to keep Jesus at the very center of everything we do. And now I'm going to show you where we're finding that. So open with me to Acts chapter 2. There's a build-up, right? There's a lead-in. You're like, dude, this better be amazing or I'm in for a letdown. <laughs> 
Acts chapter two. Here's what I'm gonna show you this morning. I'm gonna show you that this is not something that we're making up. What I'm gonna show you is this was modeled from the very first preacher, from the very first moment the church gathered, the very first sermon, they were immediately focusing on Jesus. Immediately focusing on Jesus. Acts chapter two is an amazing chapter and the bulk of the chapter is a sermon. So just look at your Bible for a minute and let me show you that from verses 14 all the way until verse 41, that entire passage is a sermon, which we're not going to read the whole thing, so just relax. We're not going to read the whole thing. And, and on, the, on either side of that sermon, before the sermon, there was a divine moment that we call Pentecost. Pentecost was the moment where the Holy Spirit had been poured out. Amazing things were happening, supernatural, miraculous things, tongues of fire, people speaking in foreign languages. It was amazing. The whole city was in an uproar, wondering what has happened, and they demand that Peter explain it, so Peter preaches a sermon. And that sermon, which begins in verse 14, is his explanation of Pentecost, and then what you notice is when he finishes his sermon all the way over in verse 30, 41, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, which I think is a definition of momentum, <laughs> right? If you want to see momentum, 3,000 people coming to Christ is a good definition of momentum. So it starts with a divine moment, Pentecost, it ends with momentum, and right in the middle is a sermon, and the sermon teaches us something really important. Will you look at it with me? I'm going to pick up in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And when Peter was preaching this sermon, many people believed he was near the tomb of David. They knew where David's tomb was. So the people are hearing Peter and then they're looking at David's tomb and he says, I assure you, David is dead. He's buried right over there. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter says, do you want to understand Pentecost? Do you want to understand this incredible miracle that's happening? 
If you want to understand that, then we have to focus on Jesus. It's the first Christian sermon. It's the first time the church has gathered. It's the first time anyone has stood in front of a group of Jesus followers who are filled with the Holy Spirit to preach a message, and the entire message is devoted to a focus on Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Focused on Jesus. And the question that we have to ask is, why? It's the question I'm going to ask this morning. The driving question of my sermon is going to be, why? Why are we so focused on Jesus? Why was Peter so focused on Jesus? And the other apostles and Paul, why was the early church so focused on Jesus? Every sermon in the book of Acts is completely focused to explaining the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Why? Why do we focus on Jesus at River West? Four reasons. Four reasons. I don't want to shock you. There's not three. There's four today. All right, just relax. It's okay. <laughs> four reasons. They're all going to come from this sermon. Four things we got to understand Here's reason number one. We focus on Jesus because his tomb is empty. That's why we focus on Jesus. His tomb is empty. Jesus died on a cross, but he's not in a tomb. Jesus is alive. He's the risen Lord. That's why we focus on Jesus. It would not make sense to focus on anyone else because you cannot make that claim about anyone in the history of our planet. And Peter knows it. And so the very, his number one objective when he sets out to preach is to demonstrate that Jesus is the risen Lord. So from the moment he starts talking about Jesus in verse 22, he's driving towards this truth. Jesus is alive. The tomb could not hold him. Look at verse 24. Here's what he says. He's preaching. He's preaching. He gets to verse 24 and he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that. Peter's saying, not even something as powerful as death could hold Jesus down. Not even something as powerful as physical death could keep Jesus Christ from being who he really is, which is Messiah and Lord and risen one. Why do we focus on Jesus? Because he's alive. That's why we focus on him. That's why we focus on him. It's the ultimate claim of the Christian faith. It's the ultimate claim in human history. If it's true, then the only rational thing to do is build your entire life around Jesus. And if it's false, then we Christians are a pitiful, pitiful crew. I mean, we're morons, right? Paul said that. Did you know that Paul said that, 1 Corinthians 15? Go read it. He said if the, if the resurrection did not happen, we are a people very much to be pitied. <laughs> That's an understatement. It's either true or it's false. And you either take it or you leave it. But there's one thing you cannot do, and that is ignore it. Because the claim is too big. That claim is so huge that you simply cannot ignore it. It wouldn't make sense. You either have to embrace it in faith or you have to reject it. But can I 
can I offer a little word of advice? If you are inclined to reject the claim of the resurrection, will you please make sure that before you do that, you actually investigate the credibility of the claim? Don't assume. Investigate. You know that for Nabil Qureshi, his biggest hang-up about Christianity was about the resurrection? Because he knew if the resurrection is true, that means Jesus is God. And that is the one thing that the Quran will never allow. He knew if the resurrection is true, that means Jesus is divine. And if Jesus is divine, I have to fall on my knees and follow him. And so he investigated. Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, you're asking me to believe in something that literally has never been repeated once more in human history, neither before this claim or after. This is a once-in-a-lifetime deal. It's never happened again. And you're asking me as a sensible, modern, scientifically-minded person to believe that it's possible. No one has ever been raised from the dead other than Jesus, so you claim. And that sounds like a massive claim. And it is. It's a one in a it's a once in a it's a once in a lifetime thing. That's why we use the word miracle, okay, to describe it. We call it a miracle because they don't happen that often, right? Miracles. But here's the thing. If your biggest reason for rejecting the resurrection is because it's never been repeated again in human history, you got a couple of other things that are going to create problems for you, okay? Like the origin of life. That only happened once, okay? And the Big Bang Theory, the Big Bang happened once. It's never been repeated, right? So if your hang-up is that's never been repeated, well, then, then you've got some other things that you're going to wrestle with. Do you know that Albert Einstein rejected and resisted the Big Bang Theory for many decades, even in the face of mounting evidence? And do you want to know why he rejected the Big Bang Theory? You want to know why? For many, after, after evidence was pouring in, the, the universe had a beginning. Albert Einstein said, that, that idea is abominable to me because that sounds strangely like Genesis 1-1. And I refuse to believe that. Even after Hubble invented his telescope and he looked out into the heavens and he proved with scientific evidence the universe is expanding, which means if it's expanding out this way, you could trace history back in time smaller and smaller to what, to what physicists call a singularity, a bang, a moment when everything, time, space, matter, everything popped into reality. That's what Hubble discovered. Even after all of that evidence, Einstein said, I don't want to believe that because I don't want to believe anything that would indicate there might be a creator. And Nabil Qureshi didn't want to believe in the resurrection because he didn't want to admit that he might be serving the wrong God and he might have to fall on his knees and worship Jesus. River West. Why do we focus on Jesus? Because the resurrection happened. And we serve a living Lord. And you know that that's why when we gather, when we gather together, we know we're following a, a leader who is alive. We say around here, do you want to know who the 
senior pastor of Riverwest Church is? Jesus Christ, the living Lord. That's who we're following, right? Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our Lord. When we worship Christ, we're not worshiping just uh, some person in history. We're worshiping the Christ who is alive, who conquered death, who walked out of the tomb. That's why we focus on him. King David, the greatest leader of all time, died. His tomb, verse 39, his tomb is right there. Peter says, he's dead. Solomon, the greatest philosopher of all time, is dead. Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's dead. Did you know that Peter is dead? Paul's dead. All of the apostles. Augustine is dead. Martin Luther's dead. John Calvin's dead. Jonathan Edwards is dead. But not Jesus. He's alive. Elvis Presley is dead. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. He's dead, and so is Tupac. Sorry. Plato's dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle is dead. Confucius is dead. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Immanuel Kant is dead. Nietzsche is dead. Bertrand Russell is dead. Charles Darwin is dead. Christopher Hitchens is dead. But not Jesus. He's alive. Why do we follow Jesus? Because his tomb is empty. That's why we follow Jesus. He's alive. That's number one. Here's number two. Sorry. Here's number two. We follow Jesus because the whole Bible is about him. We follow Jesus because his tomb is empty, but we follow Jesus because the whole Bible is about him. Now, when you're a, a, a new Christian, what happens is you, you figure that out because you start reading your Bible and you read the Gospels and you realize the, all four Gospels are entirely about Jesus, about his life, his death, his resurrection. But then you keep reading and you go into the New Testament and you realize the whole New Testament is just interpreting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And you're like, okay, that's interesting. But then what happens is you start reading the Old Testament. And you're reading the Old Testament and you come to the startling reality that the entire Old Testament is constantly pointing the reader forward to their need for a Savior, a Messiah, whose name is Jesus. And then you discover the whole Bible is about Jesus. That's why when we come in here on Sunday morning, every time we preach a sermon, have you ever noticed this? We always end by talking about Jesus, unless the whole sermon is about Jesus. <laughs> but we always talk about Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Okay? And some of you get bored. I've seen you're like, okay, here they go. They're going to talk about Jesus now at the end. Here it comes. Shame on you. All right? Even when we're preaching Old Testament, we're talking about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, and we say the only way to understand that story is if you realize that is a picture of the love of God in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Or we preach on Judah, the brother of Joseph, who sacrificed himself before Pharaoh in his brother's place, and we say the only way to understand that is to realize that the Bible calls Jesus the Lion of Judah 
Jesus is the true Judah who offered the greatest sacrifice. Or we get to a psalm where a psalm says, who shall ascend my holy hill? Who could ever possibly stand in the presence of a holy God? And when you're reading that psalm, you should never think, I gotta try really hard to be that person because it's never gonna happen. The only person who can stand in the presence of a holy God is the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And I stand behind him covered in his righteousness. And so we get our Bibles out and we open, wherever we go, we open and we talk about Jesus. And you know what? We learned that from Peter. Did you notice in the, in the, in the sermon, we look back now at verses uh, 25 to 28. Maybe you noticed as you were reading that, that Peter is preaching and he quotes from Psalm 16. That whole passage is a quote from Psalm 16. And if you were to go back and read Psalm 16, the first thing you would discover is that the name Jesus does not appear anywhere in that Psalm. So you read it, you think, is this actually about Jesus? But then look what Peter says in verse 25. He says, for David says concerning Jesus, concerning him. And then he quotes Psalm 16. And what this tells us was Peter had already learned the entire Bible is about Jesus. Why do we focus on Jesus? Because the entire Bible is about him. And you know what? Peter learned that from Jesus himself. Do you remember the story when the two men were after the, resur- after the, the death of Christ, before they had learned that Jesus had been raised from the dead in Luke 24? You can go back and read, the, read this later. Two disciples who are very discouraged are walking along the road to Emmaus. You know this story? It's an amazing story. They're discouraged. They're down in the dumps. Jesus, the risen Lord, appears, but they don't recognize him at first. And they're walking along, and they start telling this stranger they don't realize is Jesus. Man, we're so discouraged. Have you not heard what, what was happening in Jerusalem? Here's what Jesus said to them that day. He said, don't turn. I'm going to put this on the screen. He said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's amazing. Jesus said, wait, don't you understand? And then he pulled out a Bible and he went through the Old Testament and he took all the scriptures and he interpreted them, everything that they said about himself. Which if you're not the Lord, that's a very narcissistic way to read the Bible. (laughs) Okay, but if you are the risen Lord, Messiah, Christ, you can make that claim about the Old Testament. In John chapter 5, Verse 39, Jesus is scolding Pharisees for not accepting him as the Messiah. And he says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures are about me. Why do we focus on Jesus as a church? Why is that word number one? It's got to be word number one because the entire Bible is about Jesus. That's why every time we gather... The very first thing we say is, 
pull out your Bible. Pull out your Bible. Let's learn about Jesus. And when we worship, have you noticed how many of the songs are about Jesus? And when we worship, we worship Jesus Christ, the living Lord. That's why when you get together in your community group and you're in that circle and you're talking and you're opening the Bible, have you ever noticed that your community group leader is saying all the time, what does this tell us about Jesus? About what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is the interpretive key. In fact, if you don't have Jesus in mind when you're reading the Bible, you're going to misinterpret it. You're going to misinterpret it. One of the things I hear all the time from people who are skeptical, you've heard this, I know. They say, you Christians are really inconsistent with the Bible. Have you ever heard this? They're like, you want us to follow all these sexual commands, but then you don't even obey all the other commands in the Bible. Have you ever heard this argument? They're like, you want us to hold to these sexual views, but, but, but in your own Old Testament, it says you can't eat raw meat or pork or shellfish. I noticed you're enjoying your clams. As we're talking about this right now, you hypocrite, you know, and you're wearing garments with mixed fabrics in them. How can you call yourself a Christian? Have you ever heard that argument? No? I'm leaving. (laughs) You've heard that? Do you want to know the answer to that? The answer is Jesus. When Jesus rose, when he died on the cross, do you remember what happened? The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. And you know what that meant? That meant we no longer need a sacrificial system to come into the presence of a holy God. We, know it, we no longer need cleanliness laws. We no longer have to sacrifice animals because God has provided the ultimate sacrifice. I don't have to avoid shellfish. I don't like them particularly anyway, but I don't have to avoid them now because I no longer have to clean myself up to come into the presence of God because Jesus died on a cross for my sins. He fulfilled the cleanliness laws. And if you don't have Jesus as your key when you're reading the Bible, you'll misinterpret it. Why do we follow Jesus? Because the whole thing is about him the whole Bible. So we follow Jesus. We, we, we focus on Jesus because his tomb is empty. The whole Bible is about him. Here's number three. We focus on Jesus because he is seated at the throne of the universe. Jesus is on the throne. And that's why we focus on him. Right now, in this very second, this is not a past tense thing. It's not future tense. Well, it is, but it's present future, right? It's right now. As as the words are leaving my mouth and entering your ears, Jesus is sitting right now on a throne in a position of absolute authority and power. That's what Peter said does next. Will you look at it with me? Verses 32 to 36 of Acts. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is a place of not just ultimate um, honor, but actually ultimate authority. So in in the Old Testament, to be at God's right hand is to be in the place of absolute power. 
Do you remember when James and John came to Jesus and they asked for a seat on his right and his left? Do you remember that? And they came to him and they were like, Lord, before we ask you what we're about to ask you, will you promise us you'll do whatever we ask? <laughs> they said that. It's really manipulative, but it works sometimes with your parents. And they say, they say, before we ask this, promise us you'll answer, you'll, you'll say yes. When you go to your glory, can we sit on your right and your left? And they were going to end up fighting about who got to sit on the right because the right is the place of total honor and total authority. And that's where Jesus is. He's seated at the right hand of God, verse 33. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And here's what Peter's saying. He's saying, here's how you explain Pentecost, where the Spirit is poured out on the church. It forms the church. The explanation for that is that Jesus has been enthroned. He's on the throne the throne of the universe. And because he's on that throne, God has given him the authority now to pour out God's Holy Spirit. So it's amazing. You see the Trinity there? You've got, you've got God the Father, you have God the Spirit, and you have God the Son, Jesus. Just because we're saying we focus on Jesus does not mean we're not Trinitarian. We're very Trinitarian here. Believe in the Trinity. But you can't, we, we wouldn't even know God in the Trinity if Jesus had not revealed it to us. So there's no, there's no contradiction here. We can't know God as, as Trinity until we know Jesus, the Son, who's on a throne, pouring out the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, there would not be a church if Jesus were not sitting on a throne. There would not be spiritual life. There would not be spiritual power. There would never be divine moments. There would never be momentum. No one would come to faith. Because the way a person comes to faith is that God's spirit is poured out in their hearts and they're softened and they come to believe Jesus is Lord. And Peter says, that's the explanation of Pentecost. Jesus is on a throne. And that's why we focus on him. That's why we focus on him. I'm out of time and so I'm going to tell you my last reason, but this is the one that I love the most. And boy, I really hope you'll take this with you today. Why do we focus on Jesus? He's risen Lord, yes. The whole Bible is about him, yes. He's seated on the throne, yes. But this one I love. Something supernatural happens when you call on his name. Something happens. Something changes. Call on the name of anyone else in the history of the universe and nothing will change spiritually, but call on the name of Jesus in faith and something happens spiritually. This week, I asked the question all week, God, what actually happens in the heart of a person who calls on the name of Jesus? Like what goes down in their heart? What happens? And I want you to think about this. What actually happens when you take that name, Jesus, and you say it in faith? We look at what happened after Peter preached his sermon. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Notice it. Don't let it go by. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The first mega church in the history of Christianity. And why did it happen? Because 3,000 people showed up to a sanctuary? No. Because 3,000 people defined themselves as being religious? No. Why did it happen? Because 3,000 people, each individual one, took the name of Jesus on their lips and spoke it in faith. And they said, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, you are the risen Lord. You died for my sins. Jesus, I give my life to you. Jesus, I want to be saved. And they called on his name. Something happens when you take up the name of Jesus. Can I read to you Acts 4, verse 12? Just see it on your screen, write down the reference. Did you know this? There is salvation in no one else. Can we put that one up? Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name given under heaven. There it is. Yes see it. Look at that. Salvation and no one else. The only name that a person can call on to be saved is the name Jesus. And salvation is not just, I'm going to go to heaven. It is that. But in the Bible, salvation is about receiving from Jesus over the course of your life all of the gifts and the blessings of God, including eternal life, which begins now. Here's what that means for you if you're a follower of Jesus. It means you get to call on the name of Jesus all the time, every day. You don't call on the name of Jesus once just to be saved. You call on his name the moment you need wisdom. You're in a situation and you don't know what to do. Call on his name. Jesus, will you please guide me? I need your spirit right now to give me wisdom. You call on his name when you're in despair. You're reading the newspapers and you're watching what's happening in our world. And every morning, the first thing you do is you, you open your newspaper, right? Which you should not do that, by the way. Open your Bible first. But I know what you're actually doing. You're opening the, the phone and you're looking at the news feed and you're starting to feel despair and you're, and you're wondering, how do, I, how do I live in a world that seems to be falling apart? Call on the name of Jesus turn to him. Jesus, help me. Give me wisdom. Give me strength. Give me power. River West, can we do one thing together? Let's not any longer just talk about ourselves in vague spiritual terms. 
religious. I go to church. Even, even I'm a Christian, but actually I am a person who calls on the name of Jesus every day. I want to follow him. I want to focus on him. I want to build my life around him. And that's what we're going to do together as a church. We're going to focus on Jesus. And gospel, gratitude, prayer, unity, mission, maturity. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to worship. Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus today. We want to thank you for what we've learned about him or been reminded of in your scriptures, the way he was presented by Peter, this compelling answer to the question, why, why should the church focus on Jesus? I pray that today as we leave, those four truths would be driven deeper into our hearts. I want to pray for all who have come today who love Jesus and are following Jesus, that their faith would be renewed and they would be encouraged and they would leave here knowing that his name is even sweeter than we ever imagined and that we would call that name. And how I pray, Lord, for those who've come today and they're on a journey, they're not sure where they are, wrestling, struggling, thinking about the claims of Christianity. Father, I pray for each one that they would know how welcome they are here, how deeply you love them. You're drawing and knocking on the door of their heart and wooing and inviting them into a relationship of faith with your son, Jesus, that will literally turn their world upside down in the best sense. I pray for them. And if that's you, by the way, today, and you know, today is my day. I need to make Jesus the center of my world. You can pray that prayer as we sing this next song and just say, in Christ alone, I put my trust. He is my help, my all. Just put your hope in Jesus as you sing today. So Father, we bless you. We love you. Thank you for the gift of your spirit that breathes life into our church. We commit our way to you now as we go from here. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen.